All right, well, we're going to be all through the Bible today. We're going to start in Genesis, but um, you can follow along if you wish. This is, this is the time of year when uh, believers in Jesus remind each other to remember that uh, what Christmas is really all about. And we all delight in Linus Van Pelt reciting the Christmas story <laughs> to Charlie Brown and then declaring, and that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. <laughs> to free ourselves from commercialization, we take our minds and hearts back to the first Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ into the world, God becoming man. We sing with Charlie Brown and his friends that great hymn where the line is, Hail the Incarnate Deity. Hail the Incarnate Deity. God become flesh is what that means. So in Bethlehem, in Roman-occupied Judea, when Quirinius was governor, God became a man to make salvation possible for us to save us from our sins. God experienced the world as a human being. He was a man born into poverty. He was a working man, a man belonging to a conquered people. So the birth of Jesus as a Jew in Bethlehem in the city of David was not arbitrary. It had been promised long before. And that promise was rooted in something much, much older, when the world was young and man was new upon the world. <clears throat> of all the days of human misery in history, and there have been so many, that day, soon after the dawn of the world, that day, the day of promise was made. That day was the worst day for humanity, for it was the beginning of all human suffering and sorrow. It was the day man fell, the day he believed the lie. And the lie was that breaking free from his creator and striking out on his own and deciding good and evil for himself, that was the best way to go. That was the lie. It was the day of disobedience where pride replaced humility in the human heart. And defiance drove the choices of man. It's been that way ever since. So you know the story, the earliest story, Adam and Eve. There was another person there that day, a malevolence, a, a creature of subtlety and craftiness, the Bible says. To Adam and Eve, it must have been a pretty remarkable creature because this serpent had a mind like theirs and speech. They could communicate with him. And he came to them with a purpose to bring them into his rebellion against God against goodness itself. That was Satan, a name which means, it means enemy or adversary. He was the first creature to fall and he tempted man and man fell and so man was evicted from paradise and evil became a part of everything, corrupting even nature itself. But Adam and Eve were not evicted from the garden without hope. So God came to them. God came to the, to the first man and his wife, the serpent still being present, and God spoke to them. They'd already felt shame. They felt a need to cover and to hide. They were separated from God. Somehow they knew that. And God came and he asked them questions. He didn't come in fury. He wasn't angry, but 
Human beings were not his anymore. The people he created were not his anymore. Not in love, not in devotion, not in innocence. In that sense, they didn't belong to him anymore. Fellowship was broken. So the questions were asked, and as we talked about earlier, the man blamed the woman, and the woman blamed the serpent, and division and disharmony started, and that exists even amongst fellow rebels. Then God made his pronouncements, and he spoke to the serpent first, and he spoke to him at some length. Now, you know, foolish people that you encounter in our world say, talk they make jokes about snakes. Um, they're not reading the Bible very carefully if they're thinking, oh, it's a snake started talking. That doesn't happen. The serpent was a tool for an intelligence, an intelligent, malevolent being. The creature was later cursed to slither on the ground like a snake on its belly. The, a symbol of the wretchedness of the spirit that inhabited it on that day. So many things spiritual are actually seen in the physical world, right? I mean, people don't think about it too much, but only human beings do what I'm doing right now. Comfortably stand upright. We were actually made upright of all the creatures of the world. And that represents something about how we were made. We were made the lords of creation. We were, and we were moral beings, upright beings. All of that ties in together with how God made the universe. So the physical change which came upon the serpent was just a part of the change the curse would bring upon all of nature. Genesis 3.14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And in the next verse, it's the next verse that stops us in our tracks. Genesis 3.15, one of the most amazing you know, the Bible can say things that cover everything in really short bits, you know. A few sentences tell us the most important things about all of the world and ourselves and everything like that. It does that a lot in the Bible. It's amazing. It's amazingly comprehensive in these brief texts. But Genesis 3.15 catches our attention first because there's hope in it. Hope that the misery being unleashed on that day will have an end and that malevolence will ultimately be defeated. That's awesome. And standing there, hearing the message of hope, is the man and the woman. And she is especially interested because she is in some way part of the solution. So here are the words of God on that day to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Whenever you read that in the Bible, don't skim over it. Park there <laughs> and read carefully. There's much in view here. First, there's the word enmity. I will put enmity between you, this being that God's talking to, and the woman. Enmity is not a word used about animals ever. So this isn't about snakes. This is a rational being. It's a word used of creatures that have a moral will and an intelligence. Morally responsible agents. So the you here uh, is the mind that's using this serpent's body. In fact, in Hebrew, the word enmity is the first word of the sentence, which 
emphasizes something. When you put a word in first at the beginning of a sentence, it, it emphasizes what it's about. So enmity I will put between you and the woman. That's how it actually should be said. And where does the enmity come from? Well, from God. I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's a pretty interesting statement. It's actually an act of God's grace. And the first sign in the Bible that our, our mother, our first mother, would repent and live for God and come to oppose the malevolence behind that serpent. There's many other signs as well. I am confident that we will meet Adam and Eve in heaven. Now, ladies, I want you to promise me when you meet Eve, don't rag on her about your cycle <laughs> or childbirth or menopause. She knows. In fact, she lived with those things way longer than you. So by God's grace, the woman will not be a follower of the tempter. Satan, but she will hate him and he will hate her. That's the enmity that's there. She is fallen now, however. Her nature has been corrupted. She has her own sin nature. Innocence has been lost. She will slowly decline physically until she dies and her sinful bent will be passed on to her children. But with some, some of her children they will share her hatred of the adversary. Of the, They will have enmity towards Satan. And God will see to that. That's what he says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and your seed and her seed. There will be a conflict. And there will, there will be those that are descended from her that will stand against you. So look at the next line there. It says, and between your seed and her seed. So many will follow the way of the adversary, but many will be at enmity with the adversary as well. So it's a generational enmity that's going to go on. And as you continue reading in Genesis, you see a godly line and a wicked line that starts to proceed from the very first family. Talk more about that in a bit. But the next line here then shows that this enmity will conclude in a battle between individuals. So at some point in this generational conflict between Satan and the seed of the woman, one will emerge and he shall bruise you on the head. That Hebrew word is actually pretty strong, shuf. It means crush your head, the seed of the woman. He shall bruise, and, and that word you, it's singular. So he shall bruise you on the head. So the seed of the woman a descendant would deliver a crushing blow to the adversary himself, you, the, the, the person he's talking to. It's singular. So God is speaking to Satan and he's saying he will crush you. So the one who crushes his head, however, will be struck by him as well because you will bruise him on the heel. So he will suffer, but he will overcome. He's crushing Satan's head, but Satan is wounding him. He who stands over Satan, if you're picturing being attacked on your heel, you're standing up over him, and he's under you, and you crush his head, but he wounds you. But the one who crushes Satan's head will be victorious. That's the idea. 
So the question is, what woman will be the mother of the deliverer and the victor over this malevolent being, Satan? Who will she be? Well, the text here in Genesis just leaves that open, right? It could be anybody that's descended from Adam and Eve. So the serpent, what's his perspective on that? So he's told what's going to happen. He doesn't know who that will be. He doesn't know who the mother will be. He's going to have to keep his eyes open for thousands of years looking out. Eve may have hoped it was her, that she was that mother. In fact, when she has her first child, she says in chapter 4, verse 1, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. She has a spiritual awareness with regard to the birth of her first son. That child was Cain. Could he be the one? Well, she has another child, Abel. Now, you know their story. Both brothers made offerings to the Lord, which they would have learned from their parents about sacrifice. And another indication of their repentance of Adam and Eve is that they taught their son's sacrifice. They knew about that. Abel's offering is accepted. Cain's is not accepted. Cain gets angry about that, and God speaks to him directly and with great encouragement. It's a tender message that God gives to Cain. Don't be angry. Don't be angry about Abel. Don't be angry at Abel. Resolve to do better next time, and it'll all work out just fine. That's really what he says. That's the essence of it. And then God tells him, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it, right? So after the fall of man, human beings have to contend with sin within them. That's what we're seeing right away in their own hearts. They must master it. Eve had to do that. Adam had to do that. Cain is being invited to do that. It's point, God is pointing it out to him. There it is. But you can do better. You can change. You can move in a different direction. I'm putting a choice before you. Sin wants you. Cain has dark emotions within him. He's angry. An emotion that's ripe for evil when you're angry. And he has a choice to make. Repent of his anger and accept God's gracious invitation to come again. Or follow his now corrupted heart. And what does he do? He follows his heart just like our culture tells us to do all the time. And he murders his brother. So he's sent away and he goes away and founds human civilization. Music, the arts, technology, that's from him. Eve has another son named Seth. Could he crush Satan's head? Well, it's not him, but Seth is a true worshiper of the Lord. And from there, you have this division. And you follow in Genesis, there's the line of Seth and the line of Cain. And that's kind of where humanity's divided. Her seed continuing in faith and trusting in God is one line. And the seed of the serpent marked by violence and perversion and lust and the boastful pride of life. Just read the story. That comes from Cain's line. And they're at odds with each other. So the search... And the waiting, who would be worthy and able to defeat the adversary and his wicked design on keeping mankind in rebellion? Who can defeat him? So, that's where, those are the questions we're sort of left with there. Who will that be? 
Eventually, scattered people groups uh, become nations in Genesis. Where will that individual seed of the woman come from? How will we know who that is? Well, out of all the peoples of the world, God, in his wisdom, chooses one man named Abram, right? And calls him out of where he lives and tells him to go live in this other place, the land of Canaan. It's in the news all the time. So he calls Abram to go out. Now to this man, God makes a promise. Multiple promises, actually, including the Canaan land itself. But the last promise stands above all the promises. This is Genesis 12, 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then later in Genesis chapter 22, verse 8, 18, I'm sorry, the promise is put this way. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Just in case you were thinking it was just Abraham, it's not. It's his whole line, right? It's going to happen through that line. And so our search is on. So you're still in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and you've got book and book and chapter after chapter and century after century to see how this is going to work out. Our search follows Abram, called by God, Abraham's seed, the promise is affirmed to his son Isaac, you find out in Genesis, and then his son Israel. And when Israel has 12 sons, the Lord selects one, and to Judah a promise is made that from his descendants will be the line of true kings for his chosen people, God's chosen people. Many mothers and many sons follow generations, centuries, until the special young man of Judah becomes the king of Israel a thousand years after Abram. His name is David. He lived long after Abraham. David was a flawed man, but he loved God. And to him, God made a promise. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. So Abram, all the way down to David, promises are being made adding to the original promise that in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So the search narrows again. It's going to be somebody that's descended from David. And time continues. More generations, much more evil, failure, devastations, desolations, captivities, but always the promise. And then the prophets, spokesmen appointed by God, remind them of the promise over and over again. And they narrow it down to one special man. And the titles he is given suggest that he's more than a man. Jeremiah calls him a righteous branch of David. Jeremiah 23. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And then Isaiah, we read that earlier in the service, chapter 9, verse 6. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then the prophet Micah, chapter 5. As for you, 
Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who was in labor has born a child. Then the reminder, the remainder of his brethren, I'm sorry, will return to the sons of Israel and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. So the prophets identify the divinity of this person and the place he's going to be born. Bethlehem. Tiny, tiny village. And so the generations go on and time passes. Hundreds of years go by. Eventually the prophets themselves fall silent and prophets aren't made anymore but we have their written words. Empires rise and fall during those silent times. The children of Abraham struggle for survival as they are today. Eventually they fall into the sway of Roman imperial power. The eastern edge of empire is where they are. And then one day a messenger is sent from heaven to make proclamation to a woman in the tiny place of Israel in the land of Judah. He said to the young woman, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So Christmas came. That's when Christmas came. The event that started Christmas, the birth of this child, the long expected one, the promised one, Jesus Christ. So Christmas honors God's first direct fulfillment of the words Eve heard that God spoke to the serpent. Mary is the woman, a virgin. Jesus is the one who will defeat the adversary. There will be no greater enmity than that between Jesus and and the serpent. We know that one of the seed of Satan, one of the wicked, the proud King Herod, he's in that camp, right? Tried to have Jesus murdered in the first months of his life. That having failed, the evil one waited as Jesus grew up, keeping an eye on him. Didn't seem all that special, working class guy living in a family in remote Nazareth. Not much to worry about there. A devout Jew, a good man on the wrong side of things, according to Satan. But not much of a danger yet. Keeps an eye on him. Then Jesus' cousin, John, came on the scene preaching the coming of the kingdom of God. Make ready the way of the Lord, he said. And Jesus came to him. And John baptized him. And when Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens opened and a voice came out, echoing what the angel told Mary many years before. You are my son. And you, 
I am well pleased. Then right away, Jesus went into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. Who dogged his steps during those 40 days? Who was he with? Who spoke to him? The same malevolent power, person that was in the garden that lured Adam and Eve away from the Lord. The same person, the adversary. He had turned Eve's mind against God, snatched Cain out of God's tender care and control and counsel, and now the son himself is there, and he's going to turn his master temptations on him. So he goes to work, thousands of years of experience tempting human beings. He worked on his flesh, he worked on his pride, on self-sufficiency, special temptations uniquely designed for the Son of God. Oh boy, did he hate Jesus. And how unwavering was Jesus in resisting him. Those were wasted temptations. Jesus was incorruptible, so Satan fled from him. Three years the tempter watched as Jesus started to minister in the land of Abraham. And so the adversary went to work in Jesus' enemies and in Jesus' friends to undo whatever he was going to do. That old jealous anger that fueled Cain's heart, that he fed into the religious people of Israel, the Pharisees, the priestly line, the scribes. They were ready to kill Jesus early on. We've been talking about that in John's gospel as we've been working through it. Satan could crush his head, Jesus' head, instead of have his own head crushed if the means could be found, if he could be delivered up. There was a, a weak disciple of his named Judas and that thief, that self-promoter, an unbeliever, the Bible says Satan entered into him. And he went out and he betrayed Jesus. And so the crowning achievement, the adversary triumphs. Jesus is arrested. He goes through numerous illegal trials, finally condemning himself by claiming to be God's son. And now the adversary could punish this man with slow death, punches, kicks, the crown of thorns, you can just imagine the glee of the adversary. Spit on him. Strike him with a stick on that blood-stained crown you made for him. Pull out his beard. Oh, the cat nine tails. Nail him. Whip him. Shred his flesh. Pull him apart. More blows are given to him, to the seed of the woman. Satan's thinking, crush me, crush me. We're crushing you. March him through the mob. Mock him. Mock him. Save yourself. King of the Jews. King of the Jews. Drive in the nails deep. Fix him on that cross. Lift him up for all to see and mock him. No king at all. How the hosts of hell must have triumphed with him. The sky darkened and the jeering getting more sullen, more quiet. And then Jesus says, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit and breathes his last breath. 
Now it's hard to say the moment when Satan learned that this was his destruction, but how things were turned around, how things were turned around. That the cross was God's chosen means of reconciling fallen men to himself. That Christ the sinless man was dying in the place of sinners, restoring them to God, undoing the curse of death. That untold millions of people would turn to God again and find mercy and eternal life in his son. I don't know when Satan found out. Maybe right away. You know, Peter says in that mysterious passage in his letter that Christ went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. If he means the spirits of fallen angels there, then Satan may have found out rather quickly. Humiliated before his own fellow creatures, demonic creatures. We don't know. Maybe he found out on Sunday morning the way the disciples found out. When the women came and said, he's alive. We saw him risen. But whatever the timing, the decisive battle has already been won. And that's our comfort. And that's where, that's where Christmas leads us to this incredible reality that we live in as believers in Jesus Christ. History is now advancing towards Satan's ultimate overthrow. He cannot harm God's people anymore. He can work a lot of mischief. Has he had any mischief with any of you? <laughs> but when King Jesus comes in glory, he'll be done doing that too. He still works his ill will against Abraham's seed. We see that in the world today. He still fights and corrupts the gospel any way he can, but he's lost. He's lost. Colossians 2.15, the apostle Paul, once a servant of Satan, turned into a glorious servant of Christ. Paul says, at the cross, Jesus triumphed over the rulers and authorities, having made public display of them, having disarmed them. Isn't that how we want our enemies, disarmed? <laughs> That's the way I want to meet them. So the cross has actually achieved that disarming of our enemies. The worst thing that can happen to a Christian is to go to heaven and be with Christ forever. That's the worst thing that can happen to you. We are secure in his love. Jesus said something pretty important in John chapter 10. No one can snatch you out of his hand. No one can snatch his people out of his hand. So the seed of the woman came. The hopes of our first parents were fulfilled. The enmity they had for Satan was taken up by their descendant, the son of David, the righteous branch, the mighty God become man, and Satan was defeated. Mercy prevailed. Reconciliation was achieved for those who ask for it. That's why the song calls Christmas the dawn of redeeming grace. Remember Silent Night, that song? We'll sing that tonight if you want to come. <laughs> the dawn of redeeming grace. It's the great Christmas gift. A love beyond understanding. The offended king undertaking such suffering to rescue those actually rebelling against him. The judge dying in the place of those he convicts of wrongdoing. That's our God. That's our Savior. Trust in him. Put your faith in him. This is the story of humanity. It's a story of God's redeeming grace. And it has dawned. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the way you've arranged all of these great truths. 
in your word, written over many, many centuries, but telling one story, following one promise, all through history until the day the Lord Jesus came. And the God the Son was born in human flesh. That's what we celebrate today and remember today. And we ask you to put deep gratitude and humility into our hearts before him. Let us honor him as you would have us do in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.